Hi, this is Blaze again with another episode of the How I Learn series podcast. This time we have Baratunde Thurston, who is a comedian and a writer. His book, How to Be Black, is a New York Times bestseller. And um, he's smart and funny, and he would like you to know that he's an extremely handsome guy. So here he is telling a story at the show, How I Learned to Tell It Like It Is. Enjoy. What's up, y'all? I actually, uh, I had some things prepared to share, but we have some special visitors with us from Holland, which I think connect us to our previous story. Uh, Rose and Sarayan, they're here for a month. They leave Monday. Give them a big round of applause. They've been indulging in New Amsterdam from old Amsterdam. I took a trip there in December, which is a tricky time to go to Amsterdam because they have a a magical Christmas tradition, uh, Sinterklaas. And uh, there, St. Nick has a little assistant, Zwarte uh, Piet, which translates as Black Pete. And Black Pete is like a helper. He like shovels and entertains kids and throws cookies at them. Uh, the name of the cookies roughly translates to nigger cookies. And uh, roughly, very roughly, and so I went over there and I landed at their beautiful European modern airport. It doesn't make you feel like chattel. Uh, and I come out and I get my bags and I'm walking through and there's these dudes, white dudes in very blackface, playing instruments, greeting me. They're so excited to see me. You know, it's just like, real black beats here. Like, yes. <laughs> and I chose to take it as a compliment as opposed to horror. Uh, I had been briefed before I landed. So I want to share some stories that are actual and uh, bending of the truth that are, fit our theme tonight. So a lot of people think that because I'm black, I don't like racial stereotypes. That's not true. Uh, actually, I love racial stereotypes. Uh, and it's not because I love racism. I hate racism. It's a terrible thing. I wrote a book called How to Be Black. If you don't buy it, you're a racist. That's how much I hate racism. I just, I wrote a book. It takes a lot of hours. So I hate racism, but I love efficiency. And sometimes my love for efficiency comes into conflict with my hatred for racism. Because like I wanna respect your cultural differences, but that takes more time. So I just say your people are lazy, right? It's just this it's faster route to get in through the world. There is a racial stereotype which I find very troubling and it involves uh, black men, white women, and purses. And I think a lot of you know what I'm talking about because you probably yes. played a part. <laughs> Says the loud Negro male. Yes, preach brother. That's the revolution's tomorrow, let's just. Keep the time and date, you know, don't aid and abet the enemy. So what happens is you have like a white lady with a purse walking down the street, not acknowledging a race because she doesn't have to. And she'll see a black dude 500 to 1,000 meters off. <laughs> and she'll feel threatened by his existence. So she calls in the authorities. They in turn call in a drone strike. The black man is vaporized. 
And because like a silent killer of black men all over this nation, the number one killer of black men in America is actually drone strikes called in <laughs> by nervous white ladies with purses. And I got tired of this story. I'm like, I want to change the facts on the ground. I want to be Gandhi-like about this. I want to be the change I want to see. So I bought a purse. That was step one. And I was like, I want to you know, change the situation and change expectations. Then I put myself in very common white lady purse situations. Which for me means I just ride an office elevator up and down all day long, just laying in the corner, being adorable and innocent. And I wait for the population of that elevator to be reduced to me, my purse, Becky, and, uh, and one very nervous white lady. And so the tension rises with that population of three and she looks at me and I know what she's thinking because I planted the thoughts there because it was like Inception basically. And so she's expecting like the, the horrific to happen and I deliver, you know, I take that purse and I tap her lightly in the head with it and I giggle and I leave the elevator. <laughs> and she doesn't expect that at all. And I don't look back, I don't say any words and she's just left wondering, A, did that happen? Uh, did he call his purse Becky really before he left? And then she's like, is that what black dudes do now? Is that the, is that the pattern? They hang out in elevators, they name their purses, they tap me in the head, they giggle, they leave. And if they could do that, they could do anything, which means I have to treat them as individuals, so I expect anything, thus racism's over. So that's that. Uh, now for the actual. I, uh, I wrote this book. It's, uh, it really is called How to Be Black. It's, it's a memoir, primarily, of my coming of blackness. Growing up in Washington, D.C. in the 80s under a crackhead mayor surviving and thriving because of and despite that, this chapter is called, But I Don't Want to Kill People. <laughs> I've always loved talking to people, asking them questions and researching options. From the time I was in elementary school, my mother began tasking me with all family phone-based research. Whether we were planning a vacation, searching for a gutter cleaning service, or looking for just the right pair of my mother's cowboy boots, it was my job to call around and get the best deal. I was absolutely made for the college search experience, and I especially loved college fairs. Unlike in my phone research, I could interrogate these college reps in person and collect the shiny brochures full of idyllic photos that made each campus look like a retirement home for young adults, where everyone plays sports, everyone reads outside, and everyone is happy. There was never a question about whether or not I would go to college. The Sidwell Friends tuition was an investment in improved college prospects and I was not about to waste it. But as sophomore year and standardized testing season began, I didn't have very strong ideas about where to apply. I just knew that the cost and financial aid were gonna be important. I'd almost had to leave Sidwell for financial reasons after my freshman year and convinced my mother to keep me there after extensive lobbying. I sold her on my desire to stay there, explaining that I'd been elected as vice president of the Black Student Union, was doing well in classes, and all my friends were there. Meanwhile, I had a bold and persuasive case made directly to the school's development and financial aid office, emphasizing that I might have to leave because of money and asking them to increase my grants. I figured it would be a loss for both of us if I had to go for money reasons. They look good on my resume, and I look good on theirs. 
That experience taught me that sometimes the best way to get something is simply to make your case and directly ask for it. You just might get the affirmative answer you're looking for. Most significantly, I made a deal with my mother. She would continue to cover the cost of Sidwell, and I would be responsible for covering the cost of college. I readily agreed to take on that debt burden. It was easy to do at 16 years old. I had no idea how much college tuition was or that it would increase at over three times the rate of inflation. Like the US government, I figured I'd find a way to pay for it when the time came. But for my high school self, this deal meant that in addition to attending college fairs and information sessions, I attended special scholarship fairs and did independent research on every possible way to pay for school. At one such fair, I had an unforgettable encounter with a man from the Navy. I never had any intention of going into the Navy or any other branch of the armed services. I was a hyper-political, self-righteous, semi-militant kid who attended a Quaker school, railed against US imperialism and no blood for oil, and remembered proudly and loudly that black folks had refused the Vietnam draft. As I was walking by the Navy booth on my way to some non-military destination, a bald black man in uniform tried to sell me on the Navy and how much it would pay and all the great leadership and technical skills I would acquire with its money. I had to cut him off. I'm sorry, I'm not really interested, I said. Well, why not? I don't want to kill people. (laughs) Oh, you don't have to kill people. You can work on the mechanical side. But then I'd be helping fix machines that people use to kill people. So basically, I'd be killing people, and I don't want to kill people. Okay, but but you could work in our technology division, satellites, radar, networks, all the cool stuff. Right, but once again, all that cool stuff is in the service of killing people, which I already told you I don't want to do. We were at an impasse. He was trying to convince me that the Navy had all this great opportunity and money to cover my college costs. I was trying to convince him that murder wasn't really my thing. (laughs) The man became frustrated and called in reinforcements in the form of an older white man drenched in metals, probably for killing people. (laughs) The decorated one warmed up. So I understand you have some hesitation about applying for a Navy scholarship. He said confidently, nope, no hesitation at all. I'm definitely not interested. As I told your colleague here, I don't want to kill people. Did the black dude think that a white man would be more effective at getting me to compromise my non-murder values? I stuck to my guns and eventually both men moved on to other prospects. Which brings me back to New York. where I have lived for five years, which is uh, enough time to start to fall out of love uh, with this perverse city. I love it, but I hate it, and I hate that I love it in the way that I do, because here's the deal. Don't what me. You know what is, what is going on here. The city is wrong. It's broken. It's unhealthy. It's dysfunctional. It smells like pee everywhere you go. You could be in the fanciest neighborhood. It smells like piss everywhere. doesn't matter how much money you have. You cannot wash the stench of the city off of you. And we get very proud about things in this city that, uh, that make people leave other cities. Uh, like seeing a, a half-naked clown take a dump on a subway platform. <laughs> I saw that happen. <laughs> and people were like, yes, New York! And I'm like, no, that's a mental health crisis. We should not. This is a problem, people. <laughs> Don't celebrate your dysfunction. Fix it. 
So I'm a very, you know, social, outgoing, kind of gregarious type dude. You may pick up on some of that. And I generally like to meet people and introduce myself and learn. But every once in a while, I hate everybody. <laughs> and I don't want anything to do with people, which makes me right at home in this town. Uh, I, was, I was at a bar, and I just went there for the alcohol. Uh, not for the community or the friendship. They had more of it than I did. And it was a supply-demand decision for whiskey. <laughs> So I sat at this bar, and a woman, a very chatty white lady, sat next to me. And she was a terrible combination of uh, personality traits. <laughs> Just the worst uh, two aspects of people combined. She was excited about everything, and she was curious about everything. And there's an overlap in that area, which is death to somebody trying to be antisocial, <laughs> as I was attempting to be in that moment. So I sat there trying to commune with my whiskey and she's just throwing all kinds of questions at me, inter interrogating me. Uh, her first question in this fusillade, so what do you do? I don't like that question. <laughs> thank you, thank you, we're gonna hug later, thank you for that. Cause I'm like, I'm more than my job, you know, I have, I have a soul that's very interesting and hobbies and stuff. Uh, and I've had experiences like seeing a half naked clown take a dump on the subway. <laughs> She could have asked me what happened on the subway today. It would have been a very interesting conversation. She's like, nah, I'm gonna go with the boring ass, what do you do? And so what I wanted to say to her is like, look, I'm over 30 years old. My friend circle is locked. Uh, we're not gonna develop into any kind of meaningful relationship at this point in our tenure. So why don't we cut our losses and just move on? Let's just save a lot of time. Why do we have to fuck around here? Time is money, let's fucking go. But I didn't do that, because I'm a more decent person. Uh, and so instead, I treated her the way you treat a parent who uh, is on the phone uh, 20 minutes longer than you had allotted for that phone call, which is to say like 21 minutes into the phone call. And so I just started hitting her with like a disengaged, monosyllabic, like just proof of life type. I'm here, but I'm not here. I'd rather be on Facebook kind of conversation. And she's like, so what do you do? Comedian. I just spat out the word. Comedian. Oh, I love comedy. Comedy's great. You get to bring joy to people's lives. It must be awesome. Comedy's hard, though. You must be so brave. Do you have like a day job? I know lots of comics have day jobs. You're like a, a bartender or a server or waiter, like a bartender, maybe a server or waiter. I was like, actually, I, I work at The Onion. She's like, oh, shit, I love The Onion. It's so funny. It must be crazy at your office. Just crazy all the time, like monkeys banging cymbals, like <laughs> naked people rollerblading. Like, is it just crazy, just laughing all the time? Is it just crazy there? I get my health care there. <laughs> so uh, it's a pretty, pretty cool place to be. Well, where do you live? What part of New York do you live in? Brooklyn. Ooh, Brooklyn, we go hard. I love Brooklyn. <laughs> Brooklyn's amazing. Isn't it just amazing? The farmer's markets and the hipsters, and it's just so cool. Brooklyn, isn't it cool? I sleep there. <laughs> Would you live somewhere before you moved to Brooklyn? Yes. <laughs> well, where'd you live before that? Boston. I love Boston. Oh, so cute. So many colleges. You go to college in Boston? Yes. Well, where'd you go to college? Harvard. Holy shit! 
You mean to tell me you work for The Onion, you went to Harvard, you're like the whitest black guy I've ever met. Whoa! Yes. <laughs> she said that to my face within striking distance without knowing shit about me, <laughs> which I thought was a brave, bold, and foolish decision. And I really deeply desired to slowly strangle her to death and whisper into her dying ears, I'm the last black guy you'll ever meet. That was the, you know, the Ally McBeal scenario in my head. But I didn't do that, I chose freedom instead. And so I took out my purse, Becky, and I tapped her lightly in the head, and I giggled, and I walked out that bar. I'm Baratunde, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. How I learned to tell it like it is, truthfully and with some embellishment. Good night. I wanna have a book for sale if you wanna buy it. I take credit cards and shit. You can learn more about Baratunde Thurston at baratunde.com. That's B-A-R-A-T-U-N-D-E. And you can find out more about the How I Learn series at howilearnseries.com. The show is produced and created and hosted by me, Blaze Allison Kearsley, and the podcast is produced and edited by Ben Fausch. The music you're hearing is Crumble by Calexico. And that's it for now. I hope you enjoyed this installment of the podcast and we'll see you next time thanks for listening <laughs>